And now, Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word to us. Make us receptive to it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And I'd invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, Very often I'll preach on one of the appointed readings for the Sunday, but I also find it beneficial to preach through books of the Bible as well. Uh, So, as I mentioned earlier, we will be finishing the book of Philippians over the next few weeks. And this is a significant uh, juncture in the book because uh, I began this. It's been a sporadic sermon series. Just doing this every now and then for a couple Sundays. Um, So I began this actually my first Sunday here last July. So we're almost at that year anniversary. And uh, now we are at the fourth and final chapter of the book of Philippians. And as we come to this final chapter, we are entering into the section where Paul is giving his concluding commands. He here sums up the main themes and his main concerns in the letter in a series of exhortations. And the exhortations that we're going to spend time considering uh, this morning have to do with the sin of division. The sin of a lack of unity and the presence of discord and strife. We've noted before that Philippians is a very happy letter. Not only is it full of calls to rejoice and references to joy and rejoicing, even in our text this morning. But uh, it also does not contain a strong rebuke or chastisement anywhere in this letter. Uh, We see that sometimes in other letters like Galatians or Corinthians. Paul writes to the Philippians as to friends. He commends them numerous times, offers encouragements and exhortations. So the book of Philippians is a happy letter, but in this section we come the closest to a rebuke that we get in this letter. It's not really a rebuke, as we'll see, but Paul is very definitely identifying a problem within the Philippian church that he is evidently quite concerned about. And that problem is the sin of discord, disagreement, and division. We're going to come to that in a minute, but um, first let's consider verse 1 together. In verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Note how Paul addresses the Philippians. He calls them my brothers. Think about that. Paul, the apostle, chosen by Christ himself, Christ revealed himself to Paul dramatically on the Damascus Road. He writes inspired scripture. And how does he relate to the Philippians? You know, my subjects, right? No, my brothers. Though he has such a high rank and privilege as the Lord's apostle, still he puts himself right alongside us as siblings in the one family of God. You see, in the church of Christ, We are all of the same footing. 
And sure, some siblings may be older, some younger, some taller, some shorter, but we are all brothers. We are all brothers and sisters, full members in the same family and household of God, having God as our father and Christ as our elder brother. And Paul goes on to describe the Philippians in very intimate terms. My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Paul's heart for the Philippians is evident from the very beginning of the book where he says that he yearns for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul was there at the beginning of the foundation of the Philippian church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And he has a special love for them in his imprisonment as he yearns to be with them. He calls them my joy and crown. If you've watched the movie Gladiator, in it, there's this great quote by the Roman general Maximus. He says, what we do here echoes in eternity. And that is the idea here when he calls them my joy and crown. Uh, with these terms, Paul is looking to the future, to when Christ returns and he gets to stand before Jesus to give an account of his labors. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20, what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. On the last day, when Paul stands before Christ, his hope is that he will not stand there alone. He is confident that the good work that God began in the Philippian church will be brought to completion and that he will stand alongside the Philippian believers and he will be beside them before Jesus, rejoicing in them and glorying in the fruit of his ministry before Christ. Now, if you have a Bible with headings in it, it's possible that it might put verse 1 with the preceding section and... uh, and and put a chapter break kind of there. So uh, making it seem like chapter four begins with verse two. And that's because verse one of chapter four serves as something of a transition verse. It begins with that great word, therefore, right? Therefore, my brothers, which points us backwards and forwards. So it indicates that what's, what's coming after it is a conclusion or implication from what came before it. So a question we might ask here is, what is Paul pointing back to? In the immediate context, we have chapter 3, where Paul was just urging the Philippians to join in imitating him as he imitates Christ, warning them from following enemies of the cross of Christ, and instead directing us upwards to our citizenship in heaven and forwards to the final resurrection of our bodies at the return of Christ. So in light of these things, Paul says, therefore, stand firm thus in the Lord. Because your citizenship is in heaven, stand firm. Because you are looking to Christ's return, who will come down from heaven and transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body, therefore, stand firm. Stand firm. When the ways of the world entice you to turn away from Christ, stand firm. 
when you are tempted towards sin or unbelief. Stand firm when you might be tempted to crumble and compromise your faith to make things a little bit easier. Stand firm when it feels hard. Stand firm when you're tempted toward pride and selfish ambition. Stand firm when you feel anger and malice in your heart toward a brother. Stand firm in the Lord. Look to the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and be strengthened to stand by his grace. He is the one who came down from heaven to save you. He is the one who humbled himself to the point of death upon the cross. He is the one in whom you are declared righteous with a righteousness that is not your own, but is the righteousness from God that is yours by faith. He is the one who will one day return from heaven to transform your body to be like his so that you might rule and reign with Christ. Stand firm in Jesus. By faith in the Lord and in the strength that he supplies. So he's urging them, stand firm. And now he's going to switch to now addressing the need to Stand firm in one spirit with one mind as you strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Takes us back to chapter one where he says something similar. And, but here he doesn't make it general. He doesn't say just stand, you know, stand side by side, strive for the faith with one mind. He identifies the issue. He identifies a problem, an obstacle to standing firm as one. In verses two to three, Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Philippians is a happy letter. Right? He's he's writing to them as friends, but in these verses we see not all is well with the Philippians. Though as a whole, they seem to be in a good position, St. Paul here is identifying a problem that he is evidently concerned about. There is a rift between two women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, it does not seem that this disagreement has yet led to a church split or a solidified division at a broader level in the church where everyone's taking sides. But Paul sees there is some trouble stirring. Are you familiar with the expression, nip it in the bud? It is bud, by the way, nip it in the bud. That's referring to gardening in the springtime, as we've seen that we love so much. The leaves begin to come back on the trees, and we begin to see these little dots in them, right? And it's these buds. And we know that in time, if we let that grow, it will grow into a flower, and it might even bear fruit, and then that fruit will you know, be eaten or it'll be dropping to the ground and planting more of that kind. To nip something in the bud is to cut it off while it's still small before it grows into something larger. And that is what Paul's doing here. He sees the present tension and strife between two women in the Philippian church as a problem. It is a problem that is threatening to develop into something larger, something that could bring significant harm to the church. This bud is not going to become a beautiful flower, but a poisonous fruit. 
We might also think of a doctor in a hospital. The doctor shouldn't wait until things become life-threateningly serious, but should be attentive to any initial signs of concern. Like a good doctor, Paul is addressing this issue head-on with them, addressing the small problem before it becomes a bigger one. And so Paul is addressing them. He addresses the issue, and he entreats Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, Paul wouldn't be addressing this disagreement here if it wasn't one that had significant ramifications for the church more generally. We can conclude then that Euodia and Syntyche must have been influential members of the church of Philippi. The presence and significance of influential women um, had been a part of the church since its founding. The Philippian church in Acts uh, 16 was founded around the household of Lydia. In verse 3, Paul will even call these women his co-laborers in the gospel. And that's important to notice because the scriptures teach and our diocese affirms that the teaching office in the church of bishop and priest is reserved for men. That's another sermon. If you have questions about that, you can ask me. But that does not mean that women have no importance in the life or health of the church. In fact, that idea underlying that notion is a kind of clericalism that so emphasizes the distinction between clergy and lay and so emphasizes the role of the clergy that it's as though all the significant and meaningful work of the church is done by the clergy, is done by ordained officers and teachers. So really, the life of the church becomes the life of the uh, charismatic priest or pastor or the bishop. And the rest of everyone else is just kind of there to sit and watch. Coming to church becomes just a matter of watching someone else kind of do the work of the church. But according to scripture, ordained officers are ministers of the church, servants to the church on Christ's behalf. Their role, Ephesians 4 says, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is why so much of the New Testament epistles is addressed to the church as the church, calling them all to live in a certain way, calling them all to faith, hope, and love, and to do the work of ministry as baptized disciples of Christ. This is also why, if you're familiar with our liturgy here at Holy Cross from the Book of Common Prayer, there is a lot for you to do in it, right? Amen, right? Uh, There's saying prayers and responses and psalms and singing canticles and hymns, standing, kneeling, sitting, right? That's because when you come to church, Christian, you come to participate in the church, in the work of the church. Part of that is hearing from God's word and his readings and the sermon. But part of that, too, is responding to him in prayer and in praise, The work of the church is not solely done by ministers, but is done by the church. The saints are the ones equipped by bishops and pastors for the work of ministry. So Euodia and Syntyche are influential women in the Philippian church, but they're at odds. And this could spell disaster. This is important enough that Paul feels the need to address it here in this letter, to be read aloud to the whole church, Uh, and preserved in scripture through the ages. 
That's a little bit bold. I think if I just named a couple of you by name from the pulpit and said, you know, you two really need to work this out. You'd, whoa. That's essentially what Paul's doing here. So it's pretty remarkable. Now, we don't actually know what their disagreement was over. Uh, in fact, you should know that literally what Paul is telling these women to do is to think the same thing. For it to be very literal to the Greek, think the same thing. Now, that could mean you have a disagreement about something and you need to come to agree about it. You both need to figure out who's right or what the right position is and think that same thing. And then you'll be united because now you have the same right opinion. But it could also mean something else. It could also mean you need to have the same mindset, the same mind. Paul talked in chapter two about having the mind of Christ being of the same mind as uh, having the mind of Christ. It seems unlikely that Paul is addressing a simple disagreement in which one side has the right opinion, the other side has the wrong opinion, in a straightforward manner, because he urges both of them to think the same thing. It isn't urging one side to agree with the other. It's not as simple as one side's right, one side's wrong. Rather, it seems there's a problem on both sides with regard to how they're approaching this whole thing in the first place. It's less about what they're thinking and more about how they're thinking. They're not thinking according to the mindset that Paul described in Philippians 2, exemplified by Christ, which is a humble, other-oriented mindset. We have here the sins of contention, discord, strife, quarreling, and division. And many of our sharpest disagreements that lead to strife, offense, division, have not so much to do with what we are disagreeing about, but more about how we are disagreeing about it. It's not just about divergences of ideas or opinions, but it's a matter of how you're viewing and treating the other person. Have you ever had a big uh, kind of disagreement, got heated over something very minor and trivial. Right, that's never happened, right? <laughs> the reason for that is that it's not just about that trivial thing. There's been uh, other factors at work filling the room like a gas so that the smallest spark of a disagreement causes a massive explosion. The spark isn't the issue so much as an atmosphere of Pride, suspicion, selfish ambition, bitterness. The sin of division is a very tempting one in our day and age. Our society is becoming more and more polarized. Everywhere you look, seemingly everywhere, people are drawing the battle lines, distinguishing the sides. Are you with us or are you with them? Are you a friend or are you an enemy? There is, in our public discourse, a clear lack of charity, lack of respect, misconstruing intentions, impugning motives, evil suspicion. Very often, rather than reading things in the most charitable light possible, we cast them in the most negative light possible. And it's not just the society, is it, brothers and sisters? The church herself is ridden with these same sins. And Satan loves doing this. He loves 
to go about planting discord among brothers. He loves to break up Christian unity. He loves to pit us against one another. Because if if Satan can get us to turn on ourselves, well, he doesn't have to do a thing, right? It's like in the Old Testament, a, a number of those Old Testament battles are like God somehow turns the army against himself and they just kill each other, right? And then the good guys show up and they're all dead. Uh, It's like, that's what Satan does with division. And Satan especially loves it when both sides feel totally righteous in their own side. When we come to think that in our resentment, in our division, in our hatred, really, for the other brother in Christ, that we're actually righteous in this and justified in this. <clears throat> Satan loves self-righteousness more than wantonness. If we commit sins wantonly, we know it's wrong and we freely admit it's wrong, there's still hope for us. There's still a space there for conscience through which the Holy Spirit might work. But brothers and sisters, we are in an even more dangerous place when we commit a sin from a sense of duty. When our consciences are so misguided and muted that we, in the very act of sin, think of ourselves as a pretty good person and perhaps even doing something pleasing to God. What is this error but the error of the Pharisees? This is why Jesus said, tax collectors and prostitutes Enter the kingdom before you Pharisees. So what does Paul do? How does Paul address the matter of disagreement and division between the two women? What are the remedies for division in this text? Well, the first remedy is appeal. Appeal. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree. Paul doesn't here issue a strong rebuke. He doesn't even issue a command. He uses the language of entreating. And notice Paul entreats both individually. He entreats both individually. The second remedy is mediation. Verse 3, Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Naming a third party individual known to him and the recipients, who that would be. And uh, ask them to help them come to this agreement. So mediation, appeal. The third and final remedy is a Christian perspective. In verse 3, Paul gives a detailed description of both Euodia and Syntyche. He says they have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Right? These two women, these two women are co-laborers in the gospel, uh, co-athletes in this race, this struggle for the sake of the gospel. Both of their names are written in the book of life, right? The book of life, having your name in the book of life is to be one of the Lord's chosen people, members of the mystical body of Christ, the blessed company of all faithful people. Euodia and Sinti have a shared identity in the Lord, a shared vocation in the gospel. And if they would just recall that, If they would really let that sink in, if that was the driving consideration, then the bitterness and strife accompanying whatever disagreements may be there would would be taken away. 
And that's why Paul tells them to agree together in the Lord in verse 2. It's only in Jesus that they'll find the resources and the strength to be reconciled. Apart from him, we turn away from God and from one another and choose the ways of death. But in Christ, we are restored and we are brought back into fellowship with God and into fellowship with one another. So, brothers and sisters, as we seek to live lives worthy of the gospel in our present context, in the face of a watching world, even potentially of opponents, may we set our minds upon the faith of the gospel and strive side by side together for it with one mind and one spirit. As the Lord has forgiven us, may we forgive one another. And let us walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We love because... He first loved us. Let us pray.